Um, grab your weapons, whether it's digital or, or the, the real one, physical. <laughs> There's nothing better than the, the way a Bible smells, like touching it, like, you know, working through it, flipping pick. Don't look at me like that. It's true. That digital thing, you, you just lose all kinds of characteristics that need to be present. You need to feel the weight of it. All right. Thessalonians chapter 2. What do you got, sir? No, you can clobber someone with that one. That one's huge. I got one at home that's like 10 pounds, you know, so I can handle business if I need to with it in more ways than one. Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to take a weird little spot because it was, because um, actually it fell on me in a weird little spot. And, uh, and then it was Thanksgiving week and uh, I didn't want to go too far. And so we're just going to take four verses today. Chapter 2 verses 13 to 16. I need to get to the right book first, which says this. We also thank God constantly for this that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as for what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So it was always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Isn't that a great place to stop? <laughs> Horrible, but we're going to do it. We're going to make it. We're going to make it work. So there are um, many, many. How many of you are on social media? Probably a lot of you. Doesn't even matter if you're not. Um, I would probably not be if it wasn't for pastoring. Um, that's just how you get the news quickest these days in the world that we live in. So if there's a prayer request or there's something that goes down or something that happens within the congregation, uh, that's where you get the news first. And so that's the only reason I think I stay on there. But one of the things that I find all the time on social media from Christians and even non-Christians are, are life sayings or life quotes. You guys get this on your social media? Right, where people will always put something down that's an inspirational saying or something that you can live by. Um, and they're sayings that are basically uh, originate from men. And there's nothing wrong with them. A lot of them are good. In fact, I filled my phone with them to read some off, and then I thought, I don't want to spend time reading these off. Uh, you guys, I think, catch the drift of what I'm talking about, these proverbial, um, inspirational sayings that are meant to make your life easier and to make your life better and um, to live by. And some of these are super helpful. Some of these um, are even good, but, but ultimately um, they're, they're empty and they're not enough. And, and, and what I mean by that is that they may very well be words that we can live by, but they're usually not words that we can die by. Right? And there's a difference. Um, they're still at the end of the day just the inventions of man. They begin where man begins and they end where man ends. So they only go so far. They only do so much. And, and here's really the thing of what I want to say. Man does not just need more interest, interesting truth claims, right? Um, man needs a truth claim that leads him into abundant life. So we, just, we don't just need 
more good sayings and good truth claims from men. We need a truth claim that leads us into abundant life. We need a truth claim that leads us into eternal life. One of the earliest memories I have think, uh, of Sunday school, um, and I think even my mom singing this to me, um, was, was this saying, and it was actually a song. The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E, right? That's one of the first, like, memories that I have, and even maybe the, the first piece of theology that I ever gained as a child was that this was an important truth claim that was being presented to me, that I was being encouraged uh, to sing. And, and the thing about it is it's so stupidly simple, and yet it's so profound. It is so elementary, and yet it is so crucial that we believe such a thing, right? That it's crucial to our worldview, it's crucial to our life and the way that we live, the way that we approach it every single day. The greatest saying I ever heard is this one. And it's not just because I was taught it, but it's because when I heard it and was taught it, I believed it. I believed that that dumb little song was absolutely true above all else. The full belief that the Bible is the ultimate authority. The full belief that the Bible is absolute truth, that there is nothing higher that you and I in life can appeal to. Nothing. And we find that this belief existing in us is really the difference between knowing God and just knowing about God. And there is a difference. Um, verse 13, where we start today. I love what we find here in this verse. Paul says, we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, men, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. So, so you accepted it, the word that we proclaim to you, not as the word of men, as if it were of human origin, but as it really is the word of God, as divine origin divine origin. I love that Paul says, but as what it really is, because it's something that can appear like this, but it's really something completely different than what it appears like to most people, completely different. It appears as though man is writing it. It appears as though man is translating it. It appears as though man is preserving it and distributing it and speaking it, but that really ain't it. There's really a whole nother component beyond just man when it comes to God's word. So what really is it? What does the Bible say that it is if it's not the word of men? 2 Timothy 3.16. I'm just going to run through a couple of these. All scripture is what? Breathed out by God. Everything that we have here as the canon of scripture is not ultimately, does not ultimately originate in man. It ultimately originates in God and then is brought forth, breathed out, because of God, not man. God does that. Okay? Second Peter 1.21, for no prophecy is ever produced by the will of man. What is prophecy? It's just the oracles of God. It just means to bring forth the mysteries or the revelation or the, the oracles of God. It's to say things that are true about God, right? And, and, and Peter's saying here, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but man spoke from God as they were what? 
carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, men spoke from God as God carried them along to do so. You can kind of picture someone being picked up and thrown over your shoulder. So they're not really doing anything <laughs> after that. It, but but we're, they're riding on, relying on what it is that God is doing. God's the one driving the bus, right? Um, Hebrews 1 and 2, this is the way that book starts. Long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. God spoke to men through men, but it was God who did it. It's an amazing, amazing thing to think about. And, and honestly, I mean, think about it. This is what we have in our hands. This is not just another book. There are libraries full of books. This one is different because it has supernatural origin. It has divine origin. If this is just another book written by men about God, there is nothing special about it at all because we can go and find a million of those right now written by other men about God. The thing that makes this different is that God wrote it. God wrote it through men for you and I. Right? So the word of God is not just a bunch of words written by people about God. The word of God is a bunch of words written by God through people. That's the difference. We all good? This is what we must believe and be fully convinced of in order for us to actually, it's going to sound harsh, but I'm going to say it, to actually know him. We must know this. We must actually believe this. Right? And as a mark of being known by him, we must believe this. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 10. He says there, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. What does that mean? My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. In, in other words, what, it, what it's implying there is that we are not his sheep because we believe. We believe because we're already his sheep. The sheep are already sheep. And when they hear their shepherd's voice, they know that they're hearing their shepherd's voice because they're his sheep, right? So what it means is that, picture it this way. The world is, it has a bunch of sheep and a bunch of goats, and the sheep are disenfranchised. They're wandering. Some of them don't even know that they're sheep, right? And they're all over the place, and the shepherd is going along the countryside. He's going across the globe, hollering for his sheep. And when the sheep hear his voice, they follow him. And this is really the difference between how one person looks at their Bible and how another person looks at their Bible. When I hear this, when I hear this, I know that I'm hearing my shepherd's voice. Why? Not because I've decided to, not because I've said, oh, that's going to be my shepherd. No, it rings true because I'm one of his sheep. And this is how he has called me from my disenfranchisement. That's not even a word, but we're going to go with it. Um, I think I added some syllables and things like that. Um, but, but like from, from my being lost, right, and dispersed back to the fold is through the word of God. It's the same thing for you if you know the Lord, whether you knew it like that or not, is that you knew that this voice was different than every other voice when you heard it. Why and how? Because you're his sheep and you heard his voice and you went, that's my dad. That's my shepherd. I need to go there. Right? This book is supernatural that way. By who? By those who are being saved. By those who are the sheep of God. We know what we're hearing when we hear it. And Paul's really kind of acknowledging that with these guys. 
Like, you guys did this. The Thessalonians did this. They didn't just hear it as, oh, well, here's another dude strolling into town and spewing off um, his ideas of, of how the world is and what we should live like and what's true. Like, no, this is God speaking to us. It's amazing. His sheep know it's the word of God and not the word of men when they hear it. This takes us back to chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. You remember those? Just let your eyes go over there real quick. Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has what? Chosen you. Because, here's how he knows that, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We talked about this when we were back there. The gospel word is not alone. We don't just come. The gospel doesn't just come to those who it's saving by itself as mere words. There's things behind it. There's things with it that accompany the word. Power, Holy Spirit, full conviction, all a gift from God. It's supernatural. That's why the gospel has a supernatural uh, origin. Um, it's not man. It's not a man-made um, thing. The ones who know these words are from God. Let me see if I can say that again. The ones who know these words are from God and not man. I don't even know what I wrote here. <laughs> I should probably like not even try to read it. Um, let me say it this way. This is what makes me really nervous when I, when I come across people that profess to be Christians, but put the word of God on the same level um, as other information that they're getting. Like that makes me really nervous um, because the child of God doesn't do that. The child of God establishes, knows to be true, is fully convicted that the word of God is the ultimate authority over everything else that comes. Everything else needs to be weighed by God's word. It's not equal with everything else. And so it makes me nervous when I come across Christians who are, who are weighing um, um, information from here against their Bibles as if they're going to choose, like, which one's preferable, right? And it worries me because, like, it, it's putting them on the same level. Like, like, there's the same amount of authority in both. And, and that's just simply not what we have here. Um, we have something that, that um, altogether transcends in authority everything else that man can come up with or offer us, right? So it's, 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 a, it's a real challenge. If you find yourself doing that, I would, I would, try, I would ask yourself why. Why am, I, why am I thinking when the Bible has clearly spoken in an area that um, maybe I don't have to obey what it says? Maybe I can go a different direction. And, and I know why I do it when I do. Uh, it's because I'm trying to justify something that I really want <laughs> that is against God. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like rocket science. You know what I mean? Um, it, it's, re it's real easy to appeal to an authority that's not a real authority when I want it bad enough. Um, and, you, and you guys are capable of doing the same thing. Um, but really, there's no contest where the Bible has clearly spoken because there's no contest in authority. And for the people of God, it's really clear the authority that we appeal to because there's, there's nothing else that comes close. God's word is, is God's word over and above everything else. 
When we come to this word, the Bible, we come knowing for certain that there is no higher authority that exists to appeal to because we know that God is speaking here. We know that God is speaking here. The Thessalonians, according to Paul, did not just pass this message off as another man's opinion or interpretation of necessity, but as ultimate authority and ultimate truth. And Paul knows this of them due to their response, which was with their lives. That's where it goes in verse 14. He knows this. He knows that they received it not as the word of man, but as the word of God because of how they responded with their lives in the midst of persecution. In the, bit, in the midst of conditions not being well for followers of Jesus. Look at 14 there. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in, in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Okay. What was it that told Paul above all else that these guys had met the Lord? It wasn't that they got a new house. It wasn't that they got a new car. It wasn't that they got a new spouse. It wasn't that they got a new job. It wasn't that they were healed from all their physical afflictions. It wasn't that their lives got better that told Paul, Jesus knows these guys and they know Jesus. And I just want to make sure that we understand that because that's what's being predominantly taught in churches today. And it's the exact opposite. So what was it? What was it that told him? Right? It was because their lives got more challenging due to the following of Christ, the commitment to Christ. And they met that challenge because the word of God was at work in them, just like it says at the end of 13. They were happy and pleased to do so because the word of God was at work in them. One of the true marks of the one who has received the word of God and been saved by it is that he has now been set against the world. He has now been set against the world, not because we're big jerks to people, okay, because that's one way to set yourself against the world. Christians should not be big jerks, and unfortunately, a lot of times we are. We're self-righteous, we're puffed up, and we just act idiotic towards people like we're better than them. That's not what sets us against the world, though. It's, it, we're now set against the world because we're owned by a big Jesus, by a big Jesus, We're not set against men because we're arrogant, contentious, or unkind due to our newfound position in Christ, but we're set against men in that we have been now bound, bound to a Savior whom men were set against. That's the difference. Jesus was countercultural, countercultural, and those who follow him follow him upstream. That's what we do. Our message Our instruction book, our worldview, our reason for living are all in opposition to the direction that the world is flowing. In opposition. The opposition that now exists between the believer and the world exists because the believer is no longer of the world. And he knows it. We know, just like we talked about last time, that our zip code has changed. We have been given a new neighborhood to live in. We know now that we are aliens here. We know that we are foreigners here. We know now that this is not our home, but that we have another home that we are awaiting. And so we know that we're not of the world anymore, and we're okay with it. We're okay with that. These guys were okay with that. And because Jesus is the reason, and the world hated Jesus, they hate us too. This is where the opposition is. This is what's going on here, and it's what's going on still in parts of the world. This is the Beatitudes 101, right? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward. Where? In heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Being bound to Jesus has set us in opposition to men. It's just the way it is. Many of us, in reading a text like this out of Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, cannot at all in any way relate to it. I think we like it. I think we like going, yeah, we're mistreated for Jesus, but are you? <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I don't think we can relate to this much at all. It's never really been our reality. You and I have no real way to comprehend the most basic characteristic of Christianity here in this place where we live because we've been, for the most part, a Christianized nation. That's my made-up word, too. I like it. Christianized, right? We have not rocked the boat because the boats always appeared to be balanced here in this place that we live. Only now, only now are we beginning to see some public opposition and maybe even a little bit of hate, right, or disdain toward true Christian followers. And I'm not talking about conservative Republicans. I'm talking about true Christian followers, but in large part, we only read about this Christian reality in our scriptures, the one about concerning persecution, without ever experiencing it for ourselves in our lives. In the earliest days of the church, if you got saved and you became a Christian, you paid for it. You paid for it straight up. That was just part of the deal that you were signing up for. So like if you wanted a comfortable life and a good life and a happy life and a prosperous life, like don't sign up for Christianity. Don't follow Jesus. You paid for it in your neighborhood. You paid for it in your family oftentimes. You paid for it in your job. You paid for it in your reputation publicly. You paid for it in your freedom. And oftentimes you paid for it with your life. That was just part of following Christ immediately. Because at the end of the day, you knew that that which you were following was the highest authority that existed, which is God. This is true here in the circumstances in which Paul is writing to these guys under. Not only were these new converts um, in Thessalonica having to experience persecution, but Paul had to flee Thessalonica. Remember that? Tells us this back in Acts chapter 16. He was only there for three weeks. He planted this church that he's writing to in three weeks a year earlier. He was there for three Sabbath days, and then he had to flee. You know why? Because they had wanted posters of his face hanging all over the city. And so he had to bail after three weeks. And it's, it's still his circumstance a year later as he's now writing this letter to the Thessalonians, um, being the reason he cannot yet go back. When we get to chapter three, he's gonna, you know how he got the report of what's going on there? Timothy. He could still not go back because there were still wander posters all over the city. They were going to kill him if they saw him. And I don't know how that one went down. It would have been fun maybe to be a part of that conversation. Hey, Timothy, like, I can't go because I love Jesus. You go. Well, Timothy loved Jesus too. I don't know if they, like, drew straws or, like, played a game of chess over it or what to get Timothy to go. But that is how he got the report, the information that he got about how the church was doing is because he had to send somebody else because he probably would have lost his life if he walked back in to that place. These guys did what they did. They endured what they did because they received the word of God as God's word and not man's. All this is a result of that. And you and I, we're going to find out maybe, maybe in our lifetime, what we're made of with our Christian faith. 
Because we all see the trajectory. You know what I mean? I see nowhere in my Bible that says the United States of America is privileged. The Christians there will not suffer what the Christians have suffered all over the rest of the globe. It's coming. It's coming to a neighborhood near you and near me where it's going to matter who we stand for and what we really believe. It's going to matter. We'll find out when our society really wages war against us as Christians and opposing everything that we hold to and everything that we believe in, if we can still sing that song, the B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E, with conviction, with certainty, with joy, with no regret. Paul continues in verse 15 here. Uh, speaking of the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. This is heavy duty if you really pay attention to what's being said. Like this is hardcore, almost unbelievable. And, and I think if I'm just to give it its proper strength, here's what's being said concerning Israel. The chosen people of God killed God. The chosen people of God killed the messengers of God. The chosen people of God sought to kill the followers of God, all in the name of God. That's what's being said here. All in the name of God. This is unbelievable to consider. That the ones who claim to be most right are most wrong. That the ones who claim to be the most innocent are the most guilty. That the ones who claim to be the most joined to God were the furthest from him, the most opposed to him. How deceived they were, how wicked they were, and how responsible they are, which is where Paul follows here. Now, here's the catch before we move there. It can be really easy for us, non-Israelites, Gentiles, to read a verse like this and to get a little bit puffed up or even find ourselves becoming a bit anti-Semitic, boasting against the branches of Israel, as Paul says in Romans chapter 11. And so it's good to ask ourselves from time to time who killed Jesus. And so I'm just going to give you the list real quick. Okay. Number one, the Sanhedrin did. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish high council for Israel's high court and responsible for enforcing the Mosaic law, which is what they used to bring Jesus down. What was he breaking? What part of the law, according to them? Blasphemy. He was claiming to be God, right? Which brings us to the next conspirator, Joseph Caiaphas, who was the high priest of said council. He was the most powerful man in Israel at the time, and the buck stopped with him. He's the one who gave the green light on these things, okay? So Joseph's responsible, too. Pontius Pilate, of course, right? who was the Roman governor of Judea at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. So the buck also stopped with him. He had to approve of everything that was going on. Judas Iscariot, of course. We all could have come up with that one, right? Judas was responsible for the death of Jesus. Um, uh, funny, uh, interestingly enough, Jesus handpicked him, chose him for the reason that he accomplished. So uh, we have Judas Iscariot, who ultimately betrayed Jesus in the garden that night for a little bit of money because what he was dipping out of the disciples' money bag wasn't enough. He needed a little more. Uh, and then he just got sick to his stomach once he got it. Um, but he's guilty. Uh, the centurion, an unknown officer of the uh, ancient Roman army, ordered by the court to carry out and oversee the crucifixion. 
He's guilty. Herod Antipas, who was the ruler of Perea and Galilee, appointed by the Romans. Jesus was under the jurisdiction of Herod, and Herod hated Jesus. From day one, Herod was trying to topple him and have him exterminated, basically. And finally, you, right? You killed Jesus. And I killed Jesus. We, we killed Jesus. Isaiah 53 says this. He was pierced for our transgressions. No transgression, no piercing. But he was. He was crushed for our iniquities. No iniquity, no crushing. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We cannot be healed without Jesus being wounded. Right? All we, not just Israel, like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone his own way, away from him, and the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. We killed him. You killed him and I killed him. According to this description here in Isaiah, we could even add another group to the list, right? Um, I mean, scripturally, um, of who killed Jesus, and that would be the crowd uh, that was there that day when they sought to release a, a prisoner, right? Um, there was a crowd that chanted for Barabbas that day to be released instead of Jesus. And, and this really is where we could enter the story had we existed that day at that time. Because the truth is, if we're being honest, if we were found in the crowd that day when Pilate asked who should be released and who should be murdered, guess whose name we would have yelled? We all sit here now, saved by his grace, being fully mindful of his goodness on our behalf, and go, there's no way, way. You would have had a Team Barabbas shirt on that day, not a Team Jesus shirt on. Guaranteed. According to scripture, we too would have been chanting the other guy's name to be released. This is important. It is important for us to remember this every day so that we do not become too elated in our non-Jewish innocence because we're not innocent. I know that what's being said here is angering and harsh about what the Jews were doing at that time and what they did even prior to that time leading up to Jesus' coming, but we would have done what they did if we were them. We would have done the same thing. We're not innocent. We sent Jesus to the cross. When is it that Christ died for us? While we were yet sinners, you can even say before we even existed or our sin existed, Christ died for us. All right? So we might as well have been there doing all the dirty work right alongside these guys. We sent Christ to the cross. However, considering that it was Israel's physical denial, rejection, murder of the one who came bodily to them at that time and that place in his incarnation, they always fill up the measure of their sins. Verse 16, continually, they fill up the measure of their sins. They did it with killing the prophets. They did it with killing the followers of Jesus. They did it with killing Jesus. They're always filling up against God the fullness of their sins, meaning that they're using up all their credit. Or actually, they have used up all their credit over and over again, over and over again. They overstayed their welcome as a peculiar people over and over again. They've been squatting in a place that really isn't theirs, where they really don't belong. 
for a long time, masquerading as people that they are not. And so it's time for them to get evicted. This is what we see in verse 16. There's an eviction coming for these squatters and a dispersion coming. And God sent the Romans to do it. And Paul knew it at this time. Rome at this time a riding already occupied Israel. But about 24 years later, this was written in about 80, 66, 68. In 80, 70, Rome would simply stop being generous. And they would move to a full takeover and extermination of the Jewish existence. Does this sound familiar? Because it's one of these things that keeps going like this throughout history of the Jews. And it's easy to look at this right here and, 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 and be like, who did this? Oh, the Romans did this. But I think if we're honest with what we're looking at, we know that God did this through the Rome, Romans. God judged, brought his wrath, his judgment upon the Jews, upon Israel through Titus of Rome in AD 70 and his entire army. And it was at that point in history that they ceased to have an identity as an Israeli people. Weird, huh? No. Like God's wrath and judgment is real and it is right. And he, he has like all kinds of tools at his disposal to carry out his righteous judgment. Um, even using other wicked men to do it like he did here. This is actually the majority of what we see described and spoken of by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, a.k.a. the Olivet Discourse. I think we all have been taught to take the Olivet Discourse and just make it like a chapter of Jesus talking about us right now in the time that we live in when Jesus comes back. And it's not. It's primarily, if you look at it, about the judgment, about Jesus coming to Israel in judgment. And some being taken and some left, but all of them running. None of them able to stay. This is really what he's unpacking in Matthew chapter 24. And we can't end on that, right? I mean, we can't end on like the fact that, um, that, that God's going to open up a can on those who oppose him. And um, since it was Thanksgiving week and I, I had my head uh, in this text all week, I was considering a couple of very obvious things in the text that are worthy of being extremely thankful for. And I wanted to share them with you. And the truth is this, like we can literally like close our eyes and play Bible bingo and like open up to any part of like the Bible and find something immediately to be thankful for in our Bibles. Even if it's not a text where the the person, the human author is being thankful for anything, it's always there. But as I was reading this this week, there were three obvious things that stood out in this text that we should all be grateful for, thankful for. I'm thankful, like Paul, that the word of God is still being received across the globe, not as the words of man, but as the word of God. He is still talking to people. He is still calling lost sheep home every single day, all over the place. That has not stopped that has not ceased. He has not grown tired of saving those who are his. And I thank God for that. I thank God as I get frustrated sometimes because the people I'm sharing with and the people I'm praying for aren't getting saved as quick as I think they should be, or or at all seemingly, that God is making sure that all his sheep come home before he shuts the door. Every single one of them. That's something to be thankful for. 
that you and I get to participate in, in the proclamation of the gospel to anybody and to everybody, but that, it, again, that it doesn't depend on us is rad. That it does not depend on your ability to do that or my ability to do that is something to be thankful for. That we can have confidence in our gospel proclamation in his ability, in what he's predetermined, in what he's going to make sure occurs is something to be grateful for. It's something to give us great confidence in as we go forward and proclaim Christ. God will have his way. He's not going to lose. There's no way he can lose. He's going to have his way. And that's something to be thankful for. I'm thankful, number two, that though it seems like many times the evil and the wickedness that's going on in this world right now is going unseen, unnoticed, undealt with, it's not. This is a reminder of that. I don't know about you, but I can't, I can't even watch the news anymore just because of, like, it's just too heavy. It's just too heavy. Imagine in the little window that you turn on the news and see those headlines and see um, all the garbage that's going on. Imagine what it would be like to be God who sees everything all the time. It's insane, and yet has not come back and just annihilated the human race. That he is that patient, that he is that lock suffering, but also that he is just. He is not going to allow the evils that sicken you and I, the ones that look like they're getting away with evil and injustice, he's not going to let them get away with it. He's going to take care of everything. He's going to exact everything that's owed. And if it's not now, it's for certain when he comes back. He's going to settle accounts with everybody, and everybody's going to get exactly what they deserve. There is not going to be anything that's gone on that is below God's glory and God's standard that's going to be left to nothing. He's going to exact everything when he comes back, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that Satan's going to be crushed. I think, I'm thankful that sin and death's going to be crushed. I'm thankful that all those who oppose God um, will get everything that they've done, the work of their hands, the work of their labor, and, and, and I'm grateful that it ain't me, which is number three. I'm grateful that the wrath of God is not coming for me when it comes because I'm all paid up. And it's not because I figured out a way to pay up. It's because he has imputed his son's righteousness to me, to my account. God in Christ burnt my rap sheet. I no longer have a rap sheet for him to pull on that final day and go down the list. My rap sheet's gone. There's nothing there because what I have received now is Christ's. I've received Christ's. I've received righteousness from Christ, all because of the blood of Christ. Hallelujah. Amen. That's something to be thankful for, that when he comes to, um, to exact payment, I ain't got none. He's not coming for me that way, and if you're in Christ, he's not coming for you that way. I think I said this last time, for, for us who know him, that's going to be the greatest day that's ever existed. For those who do not, it's easily going to be the worst. just depends on what you do with Christ, where you are with Christ. And so what I would encourage you to ask, do you have Christ? Do you have the Son of God that's been given freely for you? The reason this table is so significant, I mean, we read it in Isaiah 53, but like, it, like when I look at this, even speaking of wrath right now, that's, that's what I'm seeing is, is um, 
I'm seeing these elements here that represent the fact that I've been pardoned from his wrath when it comes, right? Like, the, like Christ's body broken and blood spilled for my iniquities and my sins. Um, this right here is, is why I look forward to the day that God returns because he's coming to reward those that know him for an eternity in his presence and in his glory. Um, not, not to open up a can on us, <laughs> not to exact things because there's nothing left to exact, and that's what this table is. If you didn't know that, that's what it is. When you come here, this says Christ for you, God for you, rather than God against you, if you believe, if you believe. Lord, we thank you so much for, again, the scriptures that you have preserved so that we can, we can um, continue to learn from, continue to be encouraged by you through what you're doing in your church, what you have done even with the Thessalonians way back then and the opposition that they faced, um, that it didn't matter, that it didn't matter how hard they were pushed on because um, you were in them. They had you, and there's nothing greater. Um, and, and we ask the same thing for us as we grow into darker and darker days, um, that your spirit would, would just permeate um, every bit of our hearts and our heads, um, that we would want just more of you and more of you and more of you as we see things get worse and worse and worse. And so we thank you, Lord, that you are faithful to accomplish the work that you have determined to accomplish that it cannot be stolen from you or taken from you, that you will win. We thank you that you are going to win in the end and everything is going to be right. And we thank you that we get to be a part of that. In Jesus' name, amen.